This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 21 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And anything you don't want to talk about, fair enough, we can steer away from it, but I'm going to ask you some searching questions, okay? Oh, it is a big one, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. I better put a smile on your face, eh? Oh, my God. Oh, there it is. It's huge. It's monstrous. It's monstrous. Tell you what, you're the only person who said that to me in a long time, darling. That's the voice of Chris Hughes, my guest this week. He's actually the head of a new radio station in the UK called White Horse Radio. If the previous excerpt is anything to go by, Chris and me go back a long, long way. In fact, we were colleagues in radio way back between 1980 and about 1995. To say he's good fun is an understatement. The reason I wanted to bring him on this week was that he's actually launching a new radio station, would you believe, called White Horse Radio in the UK. To do something in the current climate like that is no mean feat. So I wanted to get him on and ask him what the logistics were and how you actually managed to get a radio station off the ground. In true radio style, Chris asked the question first. Dave, hello. How the devil are you, dear boy? You know, we're just bearing up under the pressure. You've got to keep going, haven't you? You've got to keep going. Uh, such a hard life, isn't it? Mind you, it's been strange, hasn't it, over the last year? Oh, my goodness. Well, I've never experienced anything like this, but I've always experienced a life of change. So for me, in a way, being a kind of a, an introvert, which you wouldn't believe, I actually quite enjoyed it being with myself. You know, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Now, I've not seen you in the skin for many, many years, but Dave Wilson and introvert are not two words you would normally find in the same sentence. Well, remember, it's all an illusion, you know? It's this image, it's the <laughs> facade, you know? But, you know, behind the scenes, I'm paddling like 10 to the dozen like a duck underwater. But, no, I'm revealing oh, too you. much about myself here. This is really about you, Chris, and I want to welcome you to On Another Track, so thanks for being my guest. Let's let's get off to the races. Why a radio station? Why would you start a radio station uh, in this climate? What was that all about? To be honest with you, um, you wouldn't start it in this climate if you were sane. Um, and actually, if you had the choice, of, the fact is we embarked on this project here in the UK before um, everything kicked off, you know, back in March um, 2020. If, if we'd known what we were letting ourselves in for, I don't think we would have done it. But, but, to be honest with you, probably it's worked out really, really well because it's taken the pressure off. It's allowed us to maybe take a step back and do this in in slow time or more exacting time, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the station itself, the name, where you're located, what you're looking to do. How are you going to change the world? Okay, well, certainly we don't plan to change the world. Um, that isn't going to happen. I, to sort of go back a few steps, I guess, really, commercial radio, certainly in the UK, has changed over the last, I would suggest, probably two decades. Back in the old days, commercial radio tended to be at the centre of a local community. It was part of the family. It was embedded 
within the community. The programming was community centric. So we keep talking about that word community. But then the model seemed to change. Costs rapidly grew out of control and it forced uh, smaller stations, if you like, to merge, to maybe consolidate their behind the scenes activities and what have you. And it was driven by, um, you know, economics, really. People had to save costs. And as a consequence of that, probably what you saw is that local link with commercial radio being lost. And I think today, certainly, I I don't know what it's like in Canada and the model um, in Canada, but certainly here in the UK, you know, you have regional stations and uh, actually they're going more national now. So the output tends to be very, very much uh, national. It's not actually focused right within the community. In terms of where your radio station is, what community are you focused on? And, you know, what's your remit? Okay, well, I think the remit is to make money. It is a business. I'm not going to um, sort of give you the bull, you know, uh, White Horse Media Group that owns White Horse Radio is a bona fide business. It's there to make money. So that's been quite brutal. Uh, It's predominantly a rural county within the UK. Uh, There are sort of bigger um, urban um, catchment areas, such as the city of Salisbury, beautiful place, obviously Swindon, Chippenham, Devizes, Trowbridge. So they're they're quite big towns, ranging from populations of 15 or 16,000 right up to 200,000. So a a real mix. And then uh, obviously, Uh, lots of green fields as well. So our aspiration really is to have um, a station that is going to be relevant to the county of Wiltshire. We're going to be relevant to our listeners. So lots of local news and lots of local features, as well as great music, but also specialist music as, as well. But I think our aspiration at the heart is to be part of that community, is to actually go into people's homes and, you know, become part of their family. White Horse Radio is, is, is a, you know, a relative of, of that family unit. How did you come about the name? Again, sort of a lot of listeners are listening from around the world. I kind of know where that connection would be, but explain how you got White Horse Radio. Why is it so relevant to Wiltshire? Well, this this goes back, uh, what, almost millions of years. Lots of uh, chalk white horses. Also, actually, the guy in Dorset with a big hard-on on the side of the um, uh, the side of the uh, mound. Um, um, Dave will have to explain that later on. Surinabis, Surinabis man, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Apparently a big symbol of um fertility isn't it absolutely yeah but um so actually yeah so again uh, like many places in the world here in the uk you know lots of um chalk images carved into hills and quite a few of them being white horses and of course we've got one literally just a couple of miles down the road so when we were kicking around for a name uh, that is what we came up with um or it's certainly shortlisted and it was the one that we went with and we thought it was great because everybody knows white horse is synonymous with the county of wilts and that's a that's a great one i probably would have went up for stonehenge uh, radio as well that would have been a good one because i i mean many listeners might not know wilts's claim to fame i think is that stonehenge is literally what 20 miles from where you live isn't it it is yeah yeah indeed and i've not been there for many years actually i think the last time i was there i was getting arrested um um uh, in the battle of the bean fields many many years ago well that's that's an opportunity for another podcast absolutely okay take me right back because i want to find out what got 
Chris Hughes's juices flowing when it came to radio. How did you get started in radio? Tell us all about that journey. Well, to be honest with you, I wanted to be part of the GWR family. It's a commercial radio station that really epitomised everything that we see White Horse Radio becoming. And um, I harangued the programme controller, the guy who was responsible for dishing out programmes, and he basically said, look, you crap, mate. Go and join a hospital radio somewhere and learn your game. So um, that is what I did. And I ended up spending 14 years with uh, Chippenham Hospital Radio, which is based obviously in a hospital just what six miles down the road and ironically enough about the same time you were about nine miles in the other direction at devices hospital radio weren't you oh you've revealed all my secrets now i was trying to keep that (laughs) quiet but you're absolutely right and yeah that's how i cut my teeth as well what was it that appealed to you about radio what was the thing that was driving you the ego the 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 ability to pull women with very little effort God bless you. I like that. You're so honest to a fault. But, but, but you know, what What did you discover when you first started to go in? It, and absolutely, I, I think it was for me, was the technical aspects of radio. I really enjoyed the audio, the reel-to-reel tapes, the real organic process that radio was like in the late 70s, early 80s. But what did you get out of it when you first went into it? Was there any reality that hit you in the face and thought, well, this is what not what I expected, or was it great? No, not at all. No, no, not at all. It was absolutely, I mean, right from a very early age, I was always um, a hi-fi man. My first job, my pocket money, I used to save to buy hi-fi components and what have you. So I think I had um, quite a fair idea of what was involved. And of course, you open that box, you go into that studio, and all of a sudden the magic is, is there. And to be able to embark on a training process to go through it. And, you know, when we say training, it's on so many levels. It's not the technical aspect of twiddling knobs and in our day queuing up records and everything. It comes down to actually learning about yourself, learning about um, getting rid of that old accent. I mean, back in our day, regional accents were certainly really shunned upon and you really had to get rid of that. But actually learning, it's it's almost like the analogy of the duck in the water or the swan, you know, it looks really ser- uh, serene on top, but deep down the feet are going absolutely crazy. Things are happening at 10 to 10 to a dozen. And they always do in, in a studio environment. I think one of the biggest things I learned, and you probably, or anybody who is, who is involved or has been involved in broadcasting is you know, something, you might have a crisis, it's something you're running out of time or, or something happens and you think, oh my God, that sounds horrendous. But actually when you listen back, you realize what seems like four seconds, five seconds to you is actually a blink of an eye. And I think once you realize that, you take control. Uh, I, again, not just from a personal development point of view, but actually the opportunities that uh, came our way, and this was just at um, a hospital radio level, to go and get involved in different events, to meet people that you would not normally come across. And then, of course, you would have the opportunity to go and play with the real boy. So eventually you do get to the studios of GWR, as it was, and the programme controller is still getting hacked off because by this time you're throwing lots of cassettes and demo tapes at them until you beat them into submission. It's okay, come and have a chat. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah. this person's going to be your mentor. And that's what happened. And I was really lucky then to go and um, become involved in one of the programmes where I sort of um, learned how to interview people 
edit these interviews. And of course, back in our day, it was real tape and razor blades and chinograph pencils, a great skill. And again, go to many different events all over the country, actually different conferences and events and um, meet lots of interesting people. You know, uh, one of the things you said today, which is very relevant actually to a lot of my listeners in business is that, and it's very similar, like going for an interview, you said that kind of four or five second gap where you have nothing to say and you start to panic. Actually, to people viewing you or listening to you, they don't realize that. They don't realize that nervousness. And actually, it's a fraction of a second or maybe half a second. But what you've got to do, and I think you hit it nail on the head, you've got to just think on your feet. You've got to pivot pretty quickly. And you're really using your resources, your knowledge in life to actually say, well, this is what I feel. And if it becomes organic and it comes from the heart and the soul, it's amazing where you can go with it, isn't it? Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it becomes organic. I think you've got to have substance with it, though, because um, and I spot this now. Maybe it's just because, like you, I'm knocking on a bit <laughs> and I tend to smell bullshit at 20 paces now. But I, I think you say it comes from the heart. And I think if you're in this industry and you're lucky enough to be in this industry doing what you love, it all comes from the heart anyway, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Listen, I want to just dig in there a little bit deeper because, again, a lot of the listeners won't know the institution of kind of hospital radio, community radio, college radio and university radios in the UK. What sort of part do they play in the building blocks of the radio stations and the people and the presenters that we hear today and for the future? How important are they? I think they're really important. I think um, I think it's really important to differentiate between what happened years ago and actually what happened now because i i think the opportunities are different i think the whole industry has changed in probably the last five years but to answer your question and we'll do it in the past tense if you like in the olden days uh, your way into commercial radio bbc radio was always probably to start hospital radio and uh, most hospitals big hospitals tended to uh, have them and that is where you would go and cut your teeth and I think um, we were talking off air earlier on, we were saying how incestuous the radio industry is. And even at a local level, most of the guys and gals that are already working in uh, BBC local radio, commercial local radio, tend to be local to the area. And they tend to have walked the path that us youngsters were walking. So it was a natural progression to go on into that field. And um, that's the way it was back then. Today, it's completely different. And I think probably the biggest single factor is technology. Today, I'm sat here actually in my home studio, mm -hmm. as is Dave. And what are we? We're seven hours apart. We're several thousand miles apart, yet it's just like being in, in the same room. Incredible. And anybody for a few quid or a few dollars can get themselves set up. You don't have to be banging on the door of a local radio station, talking to the powers that be. Actually, if you've got enough drive, you can actually start right now. Yeah. And I think that is the big difference. And I love that. You're, you're really inspiring by what you've just said there, because for me to set up doing the podcast series on and on the track, it literally cost me 99 bucks or 99 Canadian dollars to go and get my microphone, plug it into my MacBook. And I'm off to the races. I mean, literally all the other software is already on there. So that's what I would love to say to people that are listening. If you really do want to say something to the world and you've got a passion about it, just get started. In fact, you even can do it with your built-in microphone on your laptop. It's not as good quality, Absolutely. but it still gets the message across. So don't fear. Do it. <laughs> the, trouble, the trouble is, and I don't know, now I'm in real danger now of sounding like an old man. But, um, do you know, it's almost like a lot 
of the youngsters don't have that drive that we did. Can you imagine you and I, when we started out on our broadcasting careers, if we had the opportunity to do back then what you can do now, oh. we would have um, we would have grabbed it with both hands. It just amazes me that more people are not just doing it. And, you know, back to this whole thing with White Horse Radio, or in fact, uh, a station that I worked for prior, uh, trying to find presenters to come and present programmes. It's now impossible. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. But, you know, 30 years ago, mm-hmm people would have snapped your hands off or it's strange it's interesting and again i don't want to beat up on the old, on the young people there, there are some that are motivated there's no doubt about it and i think it depends very much on your personality but you know what i think it boils down to i think it boils down to confidence i think that ultimately is what's happened i think you know years ago we just had to get out there you got kicked out at say 8 30 in the morning you didn't come back till like five at night for your supper uh but you had to make your own fun you had to make your own interests you had to make your own friends and so there we didn't have an option and i think a lot of it is i think we should try and give young people much more confidence say just do it take that step across the threshold and try it and see what it feels like I think, um, you know, we're in danger of going off down another deep wormhole here. But um, I don't know what the state of play in Canada or or the US is like. But um, certainly here in the UK, over the last 20 years, the amount of money that is put in by local and central government into things like youth clubs and um, youth services has diminished exponentially it, you know it is it, it it's almost crisis you you hear about it all of the time youth clubs and everything closing down because they've not got the finances to run them and i suspect that probably has a lot to answer for Okay, that's. Uh, I'm going to come out the wormhole now, and I'm going to sort of uh, get to pry into your personal life a little bit. Now, a lot of people might mm. not know this, but you have done an amazing variety of jobs. Let me just list them off. A BT engineer, so the British Telecom engineer, and management level as well for many, many years. You've done your own photography business. You've done, obviously, radio. You've done window cleaning, which I want to talk about in a minute as well. And you've been a mayor of a town. Tell us all about that. Tell us about your career progression. Oh, God, where do I start? Certainly the uh, the mayoral thing. I guess um, 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 politics is always quite traditional in my family. My great-grandfather actually died the month that he was due to become town mayor. It's, it's really weird because um, I think at nine years old, I was stood on the Strand the Strand is like the central central part of the uh, town and uh, where a lot of the Remembrance Parade and other things happen, if you like, on, on the relevant times. And my grand was there and, and the mayor was taking the salute from the military and what have you. I said to my grand, do you know what? I think um, I think um, one of the things I want to do is um, become town mayor, as great granddad didn't do it. I, I think I'll have a crack at that. And I decided to do that at nine. Then I joined the Liberal Democrats when I was a student in the very early 80s, lots of people, even in the UK, are saying, who the hell are they? Uh, they've almost gone into oblivion now. And then, um, to be honest with you, I moved away from my hometown um, when I first got married. The sort of career and everything took me away. And eventually I came back. I had an issue, actually. Some of the neighbours and I had an issue, a simple issue around parking. So um, the way it works here is you get hold of your local councillor, your local representative and say, look, this is the issue. Are you going to sort it out? To be honest with you, none of them. I think it was only one of them that showed any interest. The other um, elected members had no interest whatsoever. So I'd just come back and there was a few of my friends. Um, you remember Steve Biffin and what have you? I Simon remember well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, lots of them said, 
why don't we stand as a collective group on the uh, town council on the next elections? Well, we all decided to do that. The only snag is when it actually happened, they all backed out and I was the last man standing and blow me down. I got elected. Um, so I became a councillor. Over a six-year period, I sort of worked my way through and started chairing some of the committees and what have you. And in 2001, I became town mayor. So at the age of, I think it was 37, I achieved that ambition that I'd set out nearly 30 years prior to that. So, And just to clarify for the listeners, this is the town mayor of a town called Calm in Wiltshire. Yes. Yes. I just thought I'd get that in there because I don't think we had mentioned the actual name of the town. And I have to say, yeah. when, when I saw you become town mayor, I was just blown away. I mean, number one, to become a politician, you have to be crazy, I think, in my book. But you did it. Oh, God, okay. Yeah. Number two, yeah. to achieve what you achieved and to become town mayor is, is, is something that is fantastic. Not that you wanted it on your resume as such or in your CV, but it's just a thing. It's an achievement. It, you're a big tick in the box there. But I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with yeah. you, though. It did help, certainly in the, uh, in the corporate world and um, my career progression in my professional life. It made a huge difference. Actually, I was going to ask you about that. that. Was my next question? How do you navigate the political annals of 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 the world, and how do you use that to good effect? Because I'll be upfront, I am just not a political player. You know, a spade's a spade to me, and what you see is what you get. And unfortunately, I'm a little bit too brutal in my honesty with people when it comes to sort of management situations. You know, guess what? It's right or wrong. There's not much grey in between. Whereas you had to navigate the political world. How do you do that as a young person or somebody in middle age? Um. <clears throat> I think probably um, um, as a younger person, it was probably more difficult without a shadow of doubt. How do you navigate it? I don't know, actually. I think probably you go to the pub most nights and um, <laughs> it was through an alcoholic haze. Um, now, it wasn't quite like that. I think I had an idea what politics was about. And to be honest with you, I think the majority of people tend to go into it for the right reason. I never did uh, see a brown envelope the whole time that um, that I was in office. Mm -hmm. It was a great learning process. I th you, you've, you've always got to try and see where the other side's coming from. You've also got to anticipate how they're going to try and um, derail you to some extent. But uh, I think if you can be bipartisan, if you can bring people to your way of thinking, if you share a common goal, regardless of your political colours, you can generally find a way through. And I think those lessons are something that I carried through in my, my professional life, really. Certainly, you know, around building relationships with people, whether it's in uh, project management, whether it's in marketing or sales, it's trying to understand where that common ground is. And if you can find that common ground you achieve results, really. Well, and again, it's down to the old book, isn't it? How to make friends and influence people, isn't it? It's about that networking, making somebody feel important because everybody wants to feel important, you know? And if you can figure that out pretty early on in your political life and build those bridges in the networking, it does help to grease the rails, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I, I think that, also, as I say, the, 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 most of the time, people in an environment like that tend to have a common goal. There are the few that maybe have um, other agendas and then the trick is, is try and understand what that agenda is. And it's not always that obvious and that easy to find the answers to that. Well, that's great advice. And thank you for that, because I always wondered what the secret was to politics. So there you are in a nutshell. OK, take me back because we that was only part of your life and a significant part. But tell me about Ma and Pa 
and how the window cleaning business got started within the family. I'd love to hear the history of that. Yeah, um, the window cleaning started in 1976. Uh, my dad, bless him, if he'd had an education, he would have been dangerous. But my dad, a mad Irish fella, worked in one of the local um, factories in the town. Of course, Carn in Wilts in the UK was famous for its bacon, world famous for its bacon and sausages. The factory, the Harris family uh, had the factory there from 1770 right up until the um, mid 70s and dad actually left the business then he was made redundant so he got himself a ladder and a bucket and fair play to him he was never scared of hard work um, he went off and built himself a window cleaning business at the height he had a team of nine working with him he was very successful and basically i left bt i took voluntary redundancy i was commuting to london three days a week i wasn't seeing my family and i obviously wanted to pursue my aspirations around photography and have my own photography business so after a third attempt i was granted voluntary redundancy so they gave me a load of money so i was able to go and do that now as a photographer, most of your work tends to be at weekends, weddings and portraiture sessions with families and everything. And dad had let his last two guys go as he was looking to retire. And one day he collared me and he said, son, I've let my last two guys go. Can you give me a hand? Maybe six days a month. Mm -hmm. And I said to my wife, I think I'll kill him, but I'll <laughs> give it a go. And um, in a way, in a way, um, uh, maybe part of me thinks I should have done it 25 years ago. So uh, when dad retired, I bought the business from dad. We modernized the business to um, reach and wash, so pure water, all that sort of stuff. And we run a successful business to this day. Excellent. Excellent. And it's interesting because um, how was it that you managed to modernize it and scale it? What were the things that you did? And you did mention a couple of bits there, but tell us if somebody was thinking of a young person or somebody who's maybe not in a job now and wants to pivot and do something a little bit different with life and stay outside. How do you do a, a window cleaning business? How do you get it started? I don't know because I didn't start it, to be honest with you. Um, but um, of course, well, okay. But but how do you how do you sort of keep it going? You know, how do you sort of modernise it? I think the first thing was to eliminate as much as risk as possible, and that becomes relevant certainly if you're going to start employing people. You know, you've got to sort of deal with the risk. So we went for reach and wash. So uh, I'm sure, actually, I'd say that. Do you have window cleaners out there? Well, we do. I mean, because especially in Canada, we're still very much like the Europe and the UK. Everything's fairly low rise. I mean, obviously, downtown Edmonton has some, you know, skyscrapers, as I call them, that have just gone up. So there's different systems there. But most people live in bungalows or two-story houses here, if you're looking at the kind of residential side of things. So it's very similar. And we do have window cleaners, absolutely. All right, yeah, no, I just wasn't sure, you know. Um, but um, so we went to Region Wash, and it was brilliant. I decided to um, build the business uh, close to home, so we, we did have a part of the business in Swindon, which is a, a fair distance from here. Um, so we were able to build the business in a new area, and then sell off bits of the business where we didn't want it. Is it fairly easy to get started? Is it fairly easy to scale? Is it fairly easy to make it modernise it? Because you talked about that reach system. What was that all about? Was that um, different from getting a, a mop in a, <laughs> a bucket and all that? Yeah, ab absolutely. So let's um, let's um, let's let's take that to pieces. So is it scalable? Yeah, absolutely. It is but certainly for somebody starting out. You know, just go and market yourself. Again, there's plenty of courses out there. Go and work for somebody else, for example, in, in the industry first. Learn the trade first. That may not always be easy so go and offer your services for free get that experience again it's it's worth the investment in yourself 
the British Window Cleaning Academy. So you book and go on courses and learn about um, different types of window cleaning and high reach stuff and app sailing and all of this crazy stuff that you can do. Again, it's it's like anything else, you know, how much are you prepared to put into it? What training are you prepared to do? But once you're out there and you're working for yourself, there is so much work out here. Certainly, again, in the UK, it is as big as, as you want to go and it is scalable, yeah. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Chris Hughes of Whitehorse Radio. Next, I wanted to ask Chris about his father and where he came from, and also how his career contrasted dramatically with his mother's career. He came from Kildare, a place called Newbridge in Kildare, or an area referred to as Akara. It's famous for its horse racing, all the top jockeys come from that part of the world and it's a skill that dad had an amazing skill to pick a winner incredible many a time um we would um, go out for a drink on a saturday afternoon it'd be son son give me 30 quid give me 30 quid quick and i'll be back and so i'd give him 30 quid and 30 pounds and um he'd disappear to the bookies and then he would come back and he would have turned that 30 quid into 300 quid wow um the times he did that um but he, you know, he just he just knew his his horses, and he always used to tell me about the Guinness. The Guinness it was made from the water of the Liffey that runs straight through the middle of Dublin. He said you would never get a pint of Guinness anywhere that tastes as good as as you will in Dublin. Here, yeah, here. Yeah. I was lucky enough to go and work on commercial radio in Dublin, and. Oh, my God, when I was out there, did my drink some Guinness? Well, you know, I have heard that. And to, again, for our listeners, if you ever want the proper pint of Guinness, you've got to go to Ireland, got to go to Dublin. It's the best in the world, apparently. And uh, my dad oh God, yeah. my dad was an advocator. He certainly said that as well. So we heard about dad. He came from an Irish background. Great with the bookkeeping. You know, bookkeeping, that's the wrong word. The bookies, I should say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The money. Handy with the, he was pretty handy with the bookkeeper. Oh, as I well, could actually. imagine, absolutely. So, <laughs> what about mum? Well, what did she do and where did she come from? Where was her family from? Oh, wow. Well, mum, mum's family is uh, local to the area. In fact, the house I live in now, or the cottage, is uh, 700 years old. I am the fifth generation to live here. So, mum actually grew up in the house that I uh, currently reside in. Wow. But yeah, mum was uh, educated here. She uh, was a very talented lady, still is actually. She trained as an opera singer. She had an incredible voice. I remember when I was growing up, her practicing, what have you. I would go to the Theatre Royal in Bath uh, twice a year to see the performances that she was in. And um, it was an incredible experience, really privileged to uh, walk on that stage and go behind the scenes. And I will say this, and I, I assume you have a watershed out there, and it might have gone a little bit, but... Um, the first time, I, well, when I went to the Theatre Royal on one occasion, that was the first time that I ever saw naked breasts at about <laughs> nine years old. What an experience, eh? That's... Yeah, it was awesome. It was amazing. I sort of remember going into the changing rooms um, where mom and everybody was, and there must have been 30 women with their breasts out. As you can imagine, as a nine or 10-year-old, thinking, I've definitely got to get into oh, this game. Oh, my goodness, Chris Hughes. You know, you've just revealed all our secrets as young guys, you know, before we get to puberty. <laughs> but here's a revelation, right? And this is something i just had my mouth open as you were telling me about your mum being an opera singer i did not know that 
That yeah, was yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so how the heck did she get into that? Do you know the kind of backstory of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, she went to college um, doing secretarial shorthand typing. Do you remember shorthand? Oh, you know? yes. Um, and uh, she studied music as well. So her mum was really supportive of that. And, uh, yeah, so she was grade seven piano she trained professionally then as um, as an opera singer. She juggled her life as working as a PA to one of the directors of a local company and um, her singing and acting. Wow. She, well, she still is a drama queen to this day. So that was mum in the early days. But um, she actually is she's a brilliant poet and she's a children's author. In fact, she's just had another book published, I think, just before Christmas, this particular book, uh, the Tales of Bessie. I remember her writing some of these stories when we were youngsters, and it's incredible that they've been on the backbone of that long to actually see them in print. I, I remember her actually writing wow. some of these stories um, decades and decades ago. So, yeah, so she's lucky. She lives on the coast now, down uh, on the south coast in the UK. She's writing uh, another book at the moment enjoying you know a nice um a nice drink of an afternoon and um yeah, yes yeah she's mad incredible. so jenny brown john if you go and check jenny brown john out she's also a blogger as well she has a blog i think it's um diaries an eccentric old woman and uh, that makes quite interesting reading as well i was just going to ask you to promote her actually whilst we were having a chat but thank you for doing that okay time's rolling on but i'd love to ask you about your photography how did you actually get into the photography side of things and how did you just start the business Okay, how did I get into photography? You might know another friend of mine. In fact, I'm sure you do. Do you remember Naveed? Yes, I do. Absolutely, yes. Well, Nav, Nav and I, we grew up um, as neighbours and it was a hot summer's evening. It, it was wee hours in the morning. And um, you're going to regret asking this question, Dave, but I'll, I'll give you the honest truth. It must have been about three o'clock in the morning. We decided to go out for a walk and it was dustbin day. Dustbins were due to be collected the next day. The garbage. And lots of people yeah. had rubbish. Yep. <laughs> and there was a big box and we had a quick peep in this book. It was full of magazines. And we thought, hello, we know what this is. <laughs> we'll have these. And um, so uh, we carted them back across the housing estate and threw them in the dustbin cupboard. And we were up really bright and early the next morning when the parents had gone to work at summer holidays. And we thought, right, let's go and find our pornographic magazines and have a look. <laughs> I love Open the box. Alas, it was photography books, magazines all about photography. And um, that just blew me away. Once I got over the disappointment of, not, well, there was naked women in quite a few of them, actually. But once I'd got away from the... Um, um, the disappointment of not being what we expected them to be. Um, it was fascinating. Oh, it was yeah, incredible. I can imagine. The, the yeah. amazing imagery. It, it, it was phenomenal. And it was based on seeing some of those beautiful photographs in some of those magazines that um, I managed to buy my first camera. And that's where the love really started. So I started when I was about 17, I think. And then um, uh, whilst I was, uh, I studied engineering back in the 1980s, I stay on at college and um, I did my city and guilds in photography. So I learned the old fashioned way of dark rooms and chemicals and stuff like that. So I'd always dabbled. And then with my first wife, I had a photographic agency, the Anne James Agency. And we used to take images in mainly uh, on transparency, we had slides and we would uh, tote them around uh, picture editors and what have you. And we would take a commission for any. Thing that that was used so it wasn't actually until 
I think it was around about 2000 or after my political career had finished, I went back to the Royal Photographic Society and studied with them, did a number of courses from that, set up my business and we would have been 20 years this year. That's incredible. That's While I'm thinking about it, what was uh, what was your inspiration? Who, looking back in the people that have done photography over the hundreds of years, who was one of your biggest influence in terms of photography when you first started? It wasn't when I first started. When I went back and studied with the University of Bournemouth, um, I had to study uh, photographers, and Vivian Mayer was um, one of them. And she really captured New York back in the 40s, 50s, a lady that had no formal training. And really, it was many, many years later, people realised just how important her work was. And also Rankin. Rankin's lucky because he's just photographed loads of people and I love photographing people. Yeah, and, and medium-wise, is it is it like the mayors of this world and Rankins of this world, the black and white really predominates? Or do you find you're a balance between the colour and the black and white when it comes to photography? You know, it's really spooky because I'm in the process of redesigning my website as we speak. And um, before I came on this afternoon, I'm actually building a collection of black and white work and I'm actually pulling it together right now. Black and white, I think it went out of fashion, if you like, but it's coming back. But I tend to do uh, both. I, I like to shoot black and white and colour, but it comes down to the client. Is what, what, what does a client want? And also what you're trying to convey as well, so what sort of mood you're trying to convey in the photograph. You know, that's the important aspect of it. I think so, and I think the biggest thing is, is it's, a, it's about capturing that individual. It's about capturing that soul. And I'm quite critical of wedding photographers. Many times um, got into heated debates with wedding photographers. You know, they uh, see a particular style and then they want to go for that particular style. It's in vogue and that's what they want to capture. And it's all very polished and it's all very um, fashiony. I don't subscribe to that. I think it's, you know, it's about capturing the moment. It's about capturing that uh, connectivity between two individuals it's that knowing look it's about that smile it's about that laugh it's about that tear and even um, you know that's just in a wedding environment but any any portrait it's about and I've already alluded to this um, in, in in this session anyway it's about building relationship it's about you, you there's no way that you can just go and photograph somebody you you've got you might only have 10 minutes You've got to build a relationship with that individual because if you failure to do that, you will not capture the essence of that person. So again, yes, photography is about the technicalities, but also it's it's about that personal relationship. And that is so, so important. So I'd love to wind us back round to Whitehorse Radio. And I'd love to just maybe give the listeners a little bit of an insight into how easy or how difficult it is. I know we alluded to it a little bit earlier on to actually set up your own radio station. If somebody was going to do that as a project and get started, what would be the three point or five point plan that you would recommend to them? Mm, that's um, that's a really good question. Don't think it's simple. It's quite a complex thing because you, you, you've got technicalities to worry about, I think, is, is a biggie. How are you um, How are you going to get yourself out there? Are you going to stream? Are you going to broadcast on a conventional transmitter? How, how, how are you going to do it? And also, you know, what, what, what some sort of technology is out there and what technology is going to best suit what you are wanting to do? If you're going to follow a model like us, for example, we are not going to have a central studio. So we have to and had to look for technology that would allow 
allow our team to work remotely because, of course, that really is flavor of the month, remote working at the moment. So it's it's understanding the structure of the workings of your organization and then marrying the technology to enable you to do that. And then also, what are you um, going to achieve from it? What is your audience? Is understanding what audience are you going to try and capture? What demographic? What age range? What are people going to want to hear? What are people not going to want to hear? What's already out there? What's going to make you and your station unique to your particular area? How are you going to be different to the offer that is already there? And also, how are you going to finance it? So if it's going to be commercials, how are you going to become a genuine, viable financial proposition for somebody who is going to want to advertise? How are you going to make it viable for them? So, um, you know, that's just a few pointers to be thinking about. Um, It goes on you know, how are you going to embed yourself within the community? What can you do as an organization to do that? Are you going to set up a community trust? Okay, great idea. Are you going to raise um, money for charity? Then who's going to administer that? Uh, Again, all of this, it's about bringing a team of people around you. It's bringing the right people on with the right passion, the right hunger, and also sharing that that vision that maybe you or, or or the management team have, you've got to share that across the piece. So, yeah, it's complex, but uh, what a way to make a living. Absolutely, yeah, with passion, for sure, definitely. So finally, tell us how we can log on to Whitehorse Radio. I'd love to have the website for that, so let's do that first. Okay, Whitehorse Radio is obviously the three Ws, whitehorseradio.co.uk. You'll be able to uh, go and have a listen as well by clicking on the listen there's also a rewind facility. So any of the programs that have been on in recent days, you'll be able to go and have a look at that. You can find us on Facebook, which is uh, Whitehorse Radio. That's it, actually. Okay, That's it. That's that as far as that one goes. Lovely. And as far as the photography is concerned, I'd love for people to be able to link onto your website and see some of the photographs that you've taken. Because I have to say some of them are absolutely fantastic. I, I must admit. Oh, bless you. Bless you. There's not many there at the moment because the website is currently under construction, but it is. It's uh, Box, B-O-X-X Photography photography.co.uk and um there'll be some images there mm-hmm. shortly both black and white and color okay well listen thank you so much but i've just got one question before we go if you were 18 again what would you tell yourself get on with it grab life by the bollocks before she passes you by and just to let people know bollocks is actually testicles in the usa and canada <laughs> But it's it's a nice expression. We say it all the time in the UK, don't we? <laughs> we do indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, don't procrastinate. Just get on. Take action. Every day, take action. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a great catch up for me and it's been wonderful to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you're speaking to us from the middle of Wiltshire in your 700-year-old cottage. Um, that just blows me away. And that just shows you, as you rightly said earlier on, technology is there to join the world together. It really is. Don't hold back, eh? You know, lovely to see. And of course, uh, you are going to come and join us at Whitehorse Radio, aren't you? I'm sure I'm. I sure I'm. I would never give up that opportunity for anything in my life. But it's been absolutely great. And thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Lovely to see you. Lovely to speak with you. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Chris Hughes of Whitehorse Radio, building a local radio station for your local community with worldwide appeal. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a Brickcam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated.
keeping us safe on the roads of North America.